Hollow Windows and Doors of Wisconsin has six lines to fit your style and financing to fit any budget. Through November 30th, choose 12 months, no payments and no interest, plus 20% off installation. Set your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. Well, Christmas comes early if you are a Milwaukee Brewers fan, and everybody should be sending Christmas cards and season's greetings and thanks to the Boston Red Sox chief baseball officer. His name is Chaim Bloom. Why do we say this? Because, well, for the perspective of Brewers fans, the big story isn't necessarily that there is at least a lockout at the moment. That will be resolved. But it's the fact that the Brewers were able to clear a $17.5 million albatross from their roster. Jackie Bradley Jr., former All-Star, was picked up beginning of last year, and the Brewers thought, oh, this guy was going to be like the answer to a lot of their problems. Well, he turned out to be the answer but it wasn't a question that people wanted to ask. Now, Jackie Bradley Jr. could be a great guy, but the bottom line is last year, for whatever reasons, he was absolutely awful, making millions and millions of dollars, scheduled to make millions and millions of dollars more. Matter of fact, the Brewers were on the hook for $17.5 million. Last year, Jackie Bradley Jr., might have been the worst hitter in Major League Baseball. And and I don't just you know, I, I don't just say that lightly. He hit one sixty three in hundred and thirty four games. He went to the plate four hundred and twenty eight times. He struck out a hundred and thirty two of those. So I mean he's striking out almost one out of every three at bats. He's hitting one sixty three. He's not a power hitter. He's not an RBAI hitter. He was just he was just absolutely dreadful. Now everybody says he was a good addition to the clubhouse and stuff, but the the Brewers weren't getting to the World Series playing Jackie Bradley Jr. And the bottom line is he took up such a huge chunk of their raw of the salary now that, that they weren't going to be able to go out and necessarily um get somebody else who could play in the outfield. So Boston, what they did is Boston agreed to take Jackie Bradley Jr. back along with two promising Brewers minor league players. But in return, the Brewers got a guy named Hunter, Hunter Renfro, who is 30 years old, coming off a really big year last year. He's a power hitter. He plays the outfield, and he makes about $10 million less than Jackie Bradley Jr. makes. So the Brewers were able to get rid of a high-paid albatross. They were able to bring in a player who plays a position that they need ever since they lost their starting right fielder to free agency this year, and they're able to save $10 million. So... I tell you, if you're looking for things to be thankful for that this Christmas season, Santa Claus came early when he cut this deal with the Brewers and the Boston Red Sox to move Jackie Bradley Jr. along. And I don't wish him ill. I, I, I don't. But it's one of those deals where you know, maybe he's going to go to Boston and he'll be able to regain some of the stuff that, that he lost. You hope that that's the case. You don't wish the guy ill. But um, his future was not in Milwaukee. All right. 
Let us get started. A lot of ground to cover. By the way, I mentioned yesterday I was going to get my booster shot, and I did get my booster shot yesterday afternoon at 4.30. Feel okay. I mean, I was. a lot of people have had you know reactions to the booster. My arm is sore, sorer than it was when I got the last, the, the regular shots or the flu shots, not as short, sore as it was when I got the shingle shot a while back. Um, and in general, no, no adverse reactions. A little bit tired, a little bit of kind of like a low-grade headache and stuff. But other than that, just absolutely fine. So um, I know some people have horror stories about the booster shots. In my case, at least knock on wood so far, um, nothing bad to report. All right. If you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I have a link to this story when I first saw it yesterday. Um, Bottom line is Daryl Brooks Jr. Daryl Brooks Jr. is the psychopath career criminal who is responsible for the deaths of six people, including the, the small child, in the Waukesha Christmas Parade. He's the guy that's responsible for you know hospitalizing, what, 60 or 70 people, however many that was, by driving through the crowd and trying to pick them off indiscriminately. He is, of course, a, a career criminal. Well, he's decided he's going to give an interview, and he gave an interview with Fox News. Um, according to the interview and the reporters, he mentioned that he is unhappy with the way he is being viewed. He says, look, um, I feel, I just feel like I'm being um, treated as a monster. I'm being demonized. I believe I have been dehumanized. So let's go back here. The career criminal who killed six people, hospitalized 80 more, says he's being demonized and treated like a monster. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. What would you say in response to Daryl Brooks? He's in jail. He's crying. He's sobbing. I'm being demonized. I'm being treated like a monster. For me, as I said on Twitter, four words come to mind. Get used to it. And I think Mr. Brooks should consider himself extremely lucky that Wisconsin does not have a death penalty because he is a monster. He is a demon. And if he feels like he's being dehumanized, well, too bad. Tell that to all the victims of his actions. Tell that to the surviving family members of the six people he killed. My response would be, okay, you're treated like a monster. You feel like you're being demonized. Get used to it. What would you say to Daryl Brooks, who is in jail, sobbing, unhappy? He's being treated like a monster, and he's being demonized. Oh, the horror. 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Daryl Brooks giving an interview saying he he's he's just he feels like he's being demonized. He's treated like a monster after mowing down sixty people, killing six at the Waukesha Christmas Parade massacre. My response to Mr. Brooks is if you feel like you're being treated like a demon, if you feel like you're being considered a monster, get used to it. Those are my four words. And by the way, you're lucky that Wisconsin does not have a death penalty because at least in my opinion, in my opinion, if there was ever a case that cried out for the death penalty, this would be that case. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Matt. Matt, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Real well, thanks. What do you think? Well, 
I just don't understand why Fox News would even give this guy the satisfaction of being granted an interview while this is still fresh, especially in the victim's minds and the trauma that they experience. Why would they even give this guy the airtime to talk? I mean, I think that that's an issue in and of itself right there because the way our society is, there's going to be people, unfortunately, that are going to go out and sympathize with this guy, and who knows what kind of ideas this guy might even yeah. give somebody else in the future. That's that's yeah. my question with that. Well, no, I and, and Matt, I think that's a very good question, because that's one of the things that popped into my mind as well. It's the, the fact that this sociopathic demonic monster it is is looking for some sort of of sympathy and decides that he he wants to talk not to explain his actions but just to complain about the way he's treated i i agree with you but one of my questions was why would anybody give this guy that forum to do that i agree and i don't know what their agenda is to it almost seems like they're well i don't think it's a, i mean i you think know, you, well, i don't well, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think it's an agenda. It's we, we've got the scoop. See, this is this is what happens in the media nowadays. It, it's it's we've we've got the scoop. You know, we're going to be able to say we've got the exclusive or we've got the first interview with with Daryl Brooks Jr. You know, the the guy who's responsible for the Waukesha Christmas Parade massacre. And so the the idea is you're going to try to get eyeballs that tune in to things like that. And and I mean, I don't, I don't know that the intention is to portray him in a sympathetic light, but clearly the way the guy. He's sobbing and he's all unhappy and you know he's just talking about I'm, I'm being treated as a monster I can't believe this well yeah I, I and and you are correct that maybe there's going to be somebody out there somewhere who looks at this and says oh the, this this poor guy I mean life life just didn't treat him appropriately and it's just he didn't get all the help he needed and you know despite the fact that John Chisholm's office kept putting him back out on the street and giving him chance after chance after chance you know he, he never really did have a, a chance no, I, I think there's an element of that, and I do think you, you have to kind of wonder about the news judgment that goes into this. The larger question, though, is the guy is whining that, you know, I'm being treated as a monster. Well, like I say, get used to it. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text um, line. Uh, let's see. Jeff, Mr. Brooks? <laughs> How dare you call him Mr. Brooks? Well, oh, okay, um, you know, what did I say? Jeff, I would say, as you frequently do, life is tough. Get a helmet for him. Um, yeah, I think that that's it. Jeff, my thoughts are, if the shoe fits, wear it. Monster indeed. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's... I think that, you know, using the phrase, I'm being treated as a demon, I'm being treated as a monster. Yes, anybody that drives their car through a parade, picking off as many people as they can and results in this type of carnage and then tries to flee responsibility. You know, it's it's not like, oh, gee, the brakes went out of my car. No, he intentionally did what he did. Then he tried to flee. You know, he tried to scam somebody into letting him call an Uber or things like that. No, this there is evil in this world. See, that's what some people do not want to confront. That's the problem that exists with people like John Chisholm, the district attorney, who's supposed to be out there protecting people. What he doesn't realize is that, or what he refuses to accept, is there are, in fact, sociopaths in the world. There are people who are the faces of evil. 
And for those people, the community needs to be protected. And I understand it may be politically incorrect. And I understand that, you know, if you go after the people who are truly evil and you do everything you can to keep them in prison for lengthy periods of time, well, maybe you won't get some of the awards from the social justice people on the East and West Coast. But you know what? You will be doing your job to try to keep people safe. Daryl Brooks complaining now that he is looking at life in prison without the possibility of parole, now complaining that, oh, they're just not treating me very well. Well, okay, if he was worried about that, maybe he should have thought of it not before he decided to drive that SUV through the Christmas parade crowd. Maybe he should have thought of it. I don't know, years ago when he embarked on this psychopathic life of crime, creating the fact that he was a career criminal, maybe he should have been concerned then that maybe people would be treating him as a monster. But as far as I'm concerned, if you behave in a monstrous fashion, well, you deserve to be treated like a monster. And it is more, I cannot imagine, a a bigger poster child for the definition of monster than Daryl Brooks Jr. And if he feels unhappy with that, my response is, too bad. Get used to it. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Speaking of interviews, Alec Baldwin has decided to sit down with a very sympathetic interviewer, George Stephanopoulos from um, ABC News. And, of course, they, they share the same sort of politics. And in, in a tearful interview, Alec Baldwin, of course, discussed the, the shooting incident that occurred on the scene of this movie that he was doing. The movie was called Rust. And I mean, everybody knows the story by now. Alec Baldwin was apparently practicing quick draw, you know, with with one of these prop guns that was there. And he did not realize that the gun was loaded with an actual bullet, which is never supposed to happen. Nobody has ever suggested, I think, that Alec Baldwin knew that the gun was loaded with a, a live bullet. So the live bullets weren't supposed to be on the So I don't think anybody can realistically blame Alec Baldwin for, you know, being given what he thinks is a prop gun and having the prop gun go off. And and, and so, I mean, I think that that's fair enough. And I understand that there's some people who might be trying to, you know, subscribe some responsibility to Alec Baldwin for the shooting. No, I mean, it, it was it was clearly an accident at that stage. Now, obviously, somebody screwed up badly with letting that bullet get into the gun. But the actual shooting itself was accidental. But that's not what caught my attention in the interview. Alec Baldwin, and I don't know whether he's convinced himself of this or whether he's concerned about lawsuits or whatever, but in this tearful interview with George Stephanopoulos, Alec Baldwin says, I didn't pull the trigger, which candidly is is news to, I, I think, most of the investigators on on the set, including like like the sheriff from the county, that that they when he says, "Well, I, I didn't I I didn't pull the trigger." Well, guns just don't magically go off. I guess there's there's always a possibility that a gun can have you know a, a hammer that's cocked and it can somehow come loose and stuff. But I, I think it's kind of news that Alec Baldwin has now in his own mind decided I didn't pull the trigger. Now nobody 
you know, if he did pull the trigger, and I think that's the general conventional wisdom, you know, he, he pulled the trigger. He, he thought it was a prop gun. You know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with doing that. You think it's a prop gun. It's loaded with blanks. You're practicing this thing. You want to see how it sounds or how it looks or, or whatever and figure out what the recoil is going to be. Okay. It, it would not be inappropriate if you've got a, a gun that's loaded with blanks to pull the trigger to find out how that's going to react. But Alec Baldwin in his own world has now decided, and this is the first time anybody's heard it, that, that, he did not pull the trigger on the gun, indicating that at least his theory is that the gun magically somehow went off in, in his hand and, and he was surprised. Now, again, you, you're not I don't think anybody should realistically be looking at him for criminal charges. But it is interesting to me, and I think it's interesting to a lot of people that in Alec Baldwin's mind, he, it's now become I I didn't pull the trigger on this. It, it just the gun sort of went went off and you, you want to say okay maybe in his own mind he's forgotten he's pulled the trigger you know maybe the hammer slipped but I, I don't think that's really the case I think more likely than not he was doing what everybody thought he was doing he's practicing his quick draw thing they're trying to get camera angles and look at how this is going to look on film and stuff I mean the real underlying problem for this is that the gun was never supposed to be loaded with a live round in the first place and nobody argued that Alec Baldwin knew it but the fact that Alec Baldwin is now his story has now morphed into not only did I not know that it was loaded, which is obviously true, not only did I not intend to shoot anybody, which I think is obviously true, but now it's that I didn't even shoot anybody. I, I just, all of a sudden, this gun just magically goes off. Now, maybe some investigation will determine that that was, in fact, the case, but that's certainly not the theory that the prosecutors are working on, and to me, it just sounds like, again, some of this denial that you get from time to time from different sort of things. Should Alan Ball, Alec Baldwin be held criminally responsible? No. Will Alec Baldwin, and as, along with other members of the production company, be sued in connection with this? Absolutely. You know, and the way that they handled guns and stuff on the set appears to be a huge issue. But now the idea is I didn't even I, I didn't even pull the trigger. The gun just kind of went off to which you want to say, you know, just just own it. Own it, Mr. Baldwin. I mean, own up to this. It's a terrible tragedy. Nobody says you intended any of this stuff. But this idea that the gun just suddenly went off. I have no idea how it fired. Um, give me a break. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. This is an interesting issue to me. Oftentimes, when we have a situation where you have a juvenile that commits a crime, one of the big questions that everybody always asks is, where where are the parents? You know, we ask that routinely in Milwaukee because, as I have said repeatedly, our, our juvenile justice system, I, I put that in air quotes because it's a joke. You know, we do not hold kids accountable. Um, you can steal as many cars as you want, and you will not get waved into adult court. Um, you will be put on double secret probation and sent back to your parents who have no control over you, don't care. Then you go out and steal another car two days later, and you're going to have the same situation that repeat itself. We just do not hold people accountable. We don't hold grown-ups accountable, and we especially do not have to hold children accountable. 
accountable. And as a result of that, you see this incredible spike in crime. And at least up until the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre, we have unfortunately tolerated that. Now, maybe, just maybe people are starting to wake up and say, you know, this is unacceptable. But one of the questions that always happens when you have these juvenile stories and you have the 13-year-old, I'm still haunted by this 13-year-old who was involved in the car theft out at the hotel by Mayfair. The 46-year-old woman comes across the kid stealing a car. He pulls her out of her car, drives over her, murders her, drives off. And and you know it wasn't that kid's first time at the rodeo. You have all these other stories about the juveniles and the stolen cars, 15 and 16 years old, driving 95 miles an hour, going down the wrong way on a street, blowing through red lights, hitting, killing other people, killing themselves, you know, killing people that are in their car. And and we understand this, that it happens over and over again. And again, we've got a system that refuses to hold the children accountable, which is aggravating in the extreme. But always the question is, Is there a level of responsibility for parents? If if parents know or should know that their kid is a juvenile delinquent who's out on the streets committing crimes and it's a school night um, and you've got a 14-year-old who's on the street at 3 o'clock in the morning, I mean, is there some responsibility for the parents? And And we always wrestle with that. Well, the shooting the other day at the Michigan High School, sort of, I mean, it's about like an hour from Detroit, raises this question. Okay, the suspect, his name is Ethan Crumbly. He is 15 years old. And and we, we all know the story. He showed up at school had a loaded semi-automatic handgun, and sometime in the early afternoon started systematically walking down the halls, picking off people. I mean, shooting people one after another. And this was, I mean, he'd aim at the kids, he'd shoot, you know, he'd end up killing the kids. Um, And so you have what, at least for the year, is the, the largest, most significant school shooting, certainly of the year. He's been he's now looking at 24 felony counts, including first degree murder, terrorism, various counts of assault in connection with Tuesday's mass shooting. Um, Four students have died. Six other students, one teacher injured in the incident. So, okay, we, we know the background. This is horrible. Well, the more we find out about it, the more questions end up getting raised. The gun that he used on Tuesday was purchased the Friday before, it was purchased last Friday, Black Friday, by his father. So the dad buys the gun. And apparently there's some reports saying that there's photographs of the kid who's actually out there using the gun for target practice. So dad buys the gun. Now, we don't know what exactly happened over the weekend, but we do know that the kid was in a position Tuesday to bring the gun and various rounds of various magazines and rounds of ammunition to the school. Well, apparently it gets worse if it's, if it's possible for it to get worse because the reports are that earlier that day on Tuesday, the parents were whistled in to the schools. And according to the reports I'm looking at, um, the parents um, met with the school officials, met with the parents and with the kid Tuesday morning, several hours before the kid ended up opening fire. It was the second time administrators had met with the kid. Apparently, um, they did it on Monday and then they did it on Tuesday over what they described as concerning behavior. 
and the, the principal wouldn't elaborate on this, but clearly um, there was there were concerns. The kid was acting out. He was behaving inappropriately uh, to the extent that he needed to be called in and whistled in by school officials on Monday, and then you got to bring the parents in on on Tuesday in the morning. Now, we also know that apparently over the weekend, the kid was writing a journal where he talked about how he wanted to kill classmates, and he recorded some messages to that effect. But as of Tuesday morning, the parents are on notice that the kid is behaving in an antisocial fashion at school, and it's bad enough that the parents had to be called in and talked to with the kid. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's get right to the heart of this. Now, we don't know everything now, but the prosecutors are already saying that they are going to take a long, hard look at considering whether or not to charge one or both of their parents with perhaps some form of involuntary manslaughter, knowing that the child had emotional problems, knowing that there were all these issues, not restricting his access to to guns, not knowing what happened to the gun that was in the house, because I presume that the parents didn't know that the kid had taken the gun on Tuesday morning, but nevertheless, you can make an argument they should. You clearly know you've got an emotionally troubled 15-year-old. You're giving him access to firearms, all right, is there is there some responsibility for mom and dad? 855-616-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And my answer is, well, maybe. I, I mean, again, you, you got to wait for all the facts to come in, but the parents were on notice that the kid was troubled. I don't know that they knew necessarily that he'd had the journal about, you know, shooting classmates, but you know... The kid is having all sorts of problems at school. You've been called in because he's got behavioral problems. Yeah, I think in that case, if you've got guns around the house, you should know where those guns are and maybe notice that your psychopathic 15-year-old has taken one of those guns and it's missing. 855-616-1620. Now, don't get me wrong. The kid, the person that's responsible at its heart is the, the, the 15-year-old who shows up and, and starts you know, shooting people indiscriminately. Don't want to change that. But if mom and dad had locked up the guns, if the kid hadn't had access to firearms, if mom and dad had checked on the whereabouts of the gun and had been aware of where this was, maybe the kid doesn't get access and maybe those people are still alive. And yeah, if that turns out to be the case, if I'm the prosecutor, I'm looking to try to find out if is there a way to be able to hold some of the parents the parents responsible for this because if you're going to be a gun owner and you've got a 15-year-old that you know is troubled, I think you have a responsibility to keep those guns out of the hands of that troubled 15-year-old. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line we discuss in a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, a lot of times I, I think, you know, we always say hold the parents responsible. And, and sometimes th- that's not necessarily a realistic thing. But in this particular case, dad buys the gun on Friday afternoon. You have a troubled 15-year-old. We know the kid is troubled. We know he's already planning this. This is very, very premeditated. Now, maybe mom and dad don't know that, but on Monday, the kid is called in to meet with school officials because of his antisocial behavior. On Tuesday, it's so bad that before the shooting, the kid and the parents are called in. So mom and dad are certainly on notice. 
that there's huge behavioral problems going on with the kid, and yet you don't know what's happened to the gun that you purchased on Friday? Well, yeah, I, I think this is a situation where and unless there's all sorts of clear evidence that mom and dad had that gun locked up and the kids somehow got around this, uh, I think you got to take a hard look at this. And if mom and dad didn't do everything possible to keep that gun out of that kid's hands, yeah, I think you have to start looking at ways to hold them responsible because that's what you do. Responsible gun owners do not allow handguns with 30, 40, 50 rounds of ammunition to fall into the hands of emotionally troubled, psychopathic teenagers. Let's start with Ben in South Milwaukee. Ben, you're first. Hello. Hey, Jeff. What do you think? Uh, so as a gun owner with kids, you have two places where you keep your gun. You either keep it locked up so your kids can't reach it, or you keep it on your person. There's no other safe way to store a firearm um, in your home with kids. So, I, I mean, I really think that if they were negligent in how they stored it, they may and sh- Mm-hmm. Possibly should get charged with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, and it, I guess it's it's almost impossible to me to create a scenario where they weren't negligent as to how they stored it. I guess you know if, if they had it kept in a gun safe and the kid stole the keys and they didn't know it. But my guess is the gun's lying around the house. The kid has access mm-hmm. to it. You know that there's there's apparently yeah. some video of the kid you know out target shooting with it. They but but especially I guess Ben, my reaction would be if, if I'm called into the school if I'm and, it's, and I'm told my kid's been behaving in this extremely antisocial fashion bad enough that i have to get whistled in i'm going to know where my gun is <laughs> i'm just going to know where the gun oh, is absolutely yeah no th- thanks for yeah. calling me yeah see that and that that's the thing it's 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 just uh, i guess one of the stunning details about this is first of all the gun was only purchased on friday i would be curious to know if there were other guns in, in the house and and I don't know the answer to that right now, but this gun that was used in the shooting was purchased on, on Friday. Don't know if the dad bought it so that the kid could use it for target practice or, or whatever the purpose was, but it doesn't matter. I agree with Ben completely. When you bring a firearm into that house, you have the responsibility for making sure it's going to stay out of the hands of people who might not use it for the proper kind of purposes. And I sure know that if I'm told by school officials that I've got a, a quote-unquote troubled you know, kid who's you know a discipline problem and been acting out, I'm going to know where that gun that I just purchased is in, in my house, and I'm going to make darn sure that it's not going to fall into the wrong hands. Let's talk to Mary Beth and Franklin. Hi, Mary Beth. You're on WTMJ. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, you just talked about it a little bit now with uh, parents buying a gun on Friday. I don't think this discussion led to why might that um, gun have been purchased in such a close time frame to this murder, and why was this son um, being taught to fire a gun? What behaviors, what incidences, what experiences led that parent to teach his son how to shoot a few days before a massacre in a school. And secondly, one would think that when the parents were called to school and they had just taught their son for whatever reason how to shoot a gun, you would think a red flag would have went off with them sitting in front of that school said, oh, my God, where is that gun? Let's run home. Yeah. Let's tell the school. I, yeah, yeah. You know, that, that I get, to me, Mary Beth, that, that's... 
I mean, that's I guess that's the the first question, and I think some of the other things you you ask are, you know, why did you get the gun? Did you have other guns in the house? What exactly was the purpose of this? But yeah, I'm with you entirely. If I if I get called in at eight thirty in the morning or nine o'clock in the morning, and my kid's behavior is so bad and troubling that the school officials have to bring you in and tell you we're having all sorts of behavioral problems, the first light bulb that's going off on my head is, huh? We we've got this gun around the house. What what's happened to that? And you're exactly right. I'm rushing home to check to find out if the gun is where it is supposed to be. And I and I, I do think if they did not do that, there is a degree of responsibility. The kids shouldn't have had the gun in the first place. Yep, absolutely. Well, we need prayer and we need some faith building in this country of ours. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you for calling, Mary Beth. Right. And look, and I'm. I understand that there are some things that are out of control of parents. And I mean, I know we all all the time, whenever we have something bad that happens with kids, we always ask that question, where are the parents? And and sometimes I disagree with you because more and I say, well, look, I I don't know that it's hold. It's fair to hold the parents responsible for this or that or the other thing. But I do think it's fair to say when you have a kid that's out stealing cars at you know three o'clock in the morning on a school night, it's fair to say, mom and dad, what were you doing? Did you not know where your child was? Why wasn't the kid home? All those different things. So I mean, I think that those are fair questions. And in this particular case, th- this is an extremely fair question because the parents were on notice that their kid was was troubled and and maybe even more so than that i don't i hope the parents you know didn't know that the kid was already recording these things about how he was going to you know kill people and things like that i mean if if the parents if there's any evidence that they knew that and they still allowed him access to the gun well you've put him in jail and throw away the key as far as i'm concerned i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe this was just negligent as opposed to you know intentionally aiding and abetting this sort of school shooting but you know when, when you know that your kid is troubled you have to take that extra step, and if you've got that handgun, well, you, you, you keep it out of the reach of the kid unless you're taking him to the gun range and you're going to, like, target shoot or something like that. Let's talk to uh, Dave and Franklin. Dave, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi. Hi Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, you know, I think I think they're absolutely responsible. You think about this. Years ago, a, a crazy kid on drugs stole his parents' car, tore through the neighborhood, tore through our front yard, did a bunch of damage. Fortunately, he didn't kill anybody, but they were responsible. Their insurance company was responsible, mm-hmm. and they were responsible. And I think this whole thing where everybody's, I guess we're fortunate that the dad didn't just buy an AK-47, because then there would have been 20 people dead. Yeah. You know, it's responsible, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I mean, if you're, look, and, and I, I stand up for the rights of legitimate gun owners, but the, the truth is, you know, how many times have we talked about various stories? Now, most of the times, it's not the kid that gets the gun and uses an intentional crime. Most of the times, it's the kids that get the gun and they're playing with it and one shoots another, you know, shoots their sibling or something like that. But but in, in those cases, I think the parents need to be responsible. And in this case, I think the parents need to be responsible. You've got to keep those guns out of the hands of the kids. That's what it comes, that's one of the things with, that comes with being a responsible firearms owner. Yeah, now thanks for calling. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I guess we're, you know, we'll, we'll see. The, the laws are, are vague. I guess that's the way they have been described in, in Michigan. I mean, there's not, there's not a specific law that says if you are an adult 
and you know your child gains access to a firearm that you are automatically liable but there are different statutes that you could look at without going too deeply into the weeds like involuntary manslaughter and things like that there are things that you could do to to hold parents accountable and look i'm typically not one of these guys who's a huge proponent of more gun laws i i'm not because i i i argue let's let, let's enforce the laws that are on on the books and you know that that's part of the underlying problem every time there's an incident people go, oh, this is why we need more gun laws well no it's you know generally speaking the the, the person that's getting that that said about and we need more gun laws has normally probably committed 5 10 15 violations anyways and more gun laws aren't going to make a difference in this particular case though maybe this is one of those situations where yeah if if we're going to say to people you're going to be a law abiding legitimate gun owner but you have some responsibilities to keep firearms out of the hands of minors or people who otherwise you should be on notice would, would know that would misuse them, well, maybe this is one of the things that you'll look at. But I think the parents are going to have a lot of questions to answer. Now, keep in mind, these are the same parents, and we talked about this yesterday, and, and some of you disagreed with me. You might have disagreed with me on this. These were the parents whose initial reaction was, let's get, let's lawyer up, let's get the kid a lawyer, and we're not going to cooperate at all with authorities. Part of that might be to protect the kid, Part of it might be to protect mom and dad, who might have some things to answer for as well. A lot of stuff coming up on the program. Do not go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the program. All right, so sometime this hour, uh, almost two weeks after the Waukesha Christmas Parade Massacre, the district attorney is coming out of the bunker, and he's going to sit down with the chief judge, and they're going to explain to the county board why what goes on in Milwaukee County is not a complete and total disaster. Now, now here's the thing you need to keep in mind. This is, this is something that is intentional. I mean, for, during John Chisholm's entire tenure there, he has made a, a reputation for himself nationally by not incarcerating people. That That's the idea. We go out of our way to try to not put people in, in jail. And as a result of that, you've seen violent crime rates in Milwaukee that have gone absolutely through the roof, and in many cases, even more so than the, the national rates. And we, we just, and up until now, it's just been, oh, this is this wonderful sort of thing. We're not going to even worry about this because, of course, we don't want to incarcerate people. We want to put them back out on the streets. Well, the problem is putting people back out on the streets simply endangers all the rest of us. And again, it, it might get you awards from, again, people on the East Coast or the West Coast and in some of the liberal circles that you run, it might be great because, oh, we're finding all these alternatives. But meanwhile, on the mean streets of Milwaukee, people or Waukesha, people end up dying, people end up being victimized by crime. And that is not going to change because the problem is we have a lot of apologists around here, including apologists in the media, who are well, of course we don't want to hold people in jail. Of course we want to find all these alternatives. And they're going to be very, very quick to write off the Daryl Brooks case as just as an aberration. Now, the Daryl Brooks case might be an extreme situation because nobody in their right mind thinks this guy should have been out on, on bail. But but it is, it's not an aberration. This might have been the worst example or one of the worst examples of these policies. But these are policies that have been continually putting dangerous people out on the street and 
nobody has been keeping track of it until now. Now, there was an interesting story in, in the Journal Sentinel that um, actually that the phrase irony came to mind on, on this uh, because it, it raises my the point I'm trying to make, but we, we don't even... We don't even address this. So here, uh, I, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. I sent out a link to this story. So here's what it says. Here's the headline. A man who was shot in South Milwaukee is facing felony charges. Police say the shooter acted in self-defense. Now, the story gets confusing, but I'll, I'll share it with you and make my point. The 23-year-old man shot in the leg in South Milwaukee is facing Various felony bail jumping charges. The 22-year-old woman who police say shot the man is not facing charges. And the South Milwaukee police chief says she was not charged based on self-defense issues. Okay, Theopolis McLean of Milwaukee was charged in Milwaukee County Circuit Court with three counts of felony bail jumping, with domestic abuse assessments as a domestic abuse repeater and a habitual criminality repeater. If convicted, he could be looking at decades behind bars. Well, don't count on that. This is Milwaukee County. The shooting occurred in the 1800 block of Rawson Avenue around 2.50 p.m. November 2nd. At the time, um, what they said is it was a domestic incident. Okay, according to the criminal complaint, the 22-year-old woman was speaking with someone on the phone when she gets home. The person, um, that person told police she mentioned being afraid to go home because McLean could be waiting there. So this guy is like the ex-boyfriend. And as often happens in these domestic abuse cases, you, you've got the, in this case, it's the woman. She's terrified of the guy. She goes home. He's waiting for you. Um, the person on the call with the 22-year-old told police she heard the woman ask someone why they were at her house. Um, she also heard McLean say he's there to get things. The woman says, I'll get your stuff. I'll bring it down. At that point in time, McLean gets upset. The person on the line said McLean and the woman began to tussle, and she heard the 22-year-old tell him, don't come close to me, don't come close to me. Soon after that, they heard McLean yell he was shot, and the phone cut off. McLean admitted he was at the home of his ex-girlfriend, and she said either she or the new boyfriend shot him. Okay, so you've got this domestic abuse situation. The guy shows up at the house where he's not supposed to be, and um, a, a tussle ensues, and he ends up getting shot in the leg. Well, they're not going to charge the woman that shot him. But here's the dazzling detail. McLean, now this is the 23-year-old who shows up at the house, has numerous open felony cases in Milwaukee County, including one for fleeing an officer and another for discharging a firearm at the woman involved in the South Milwaukee case. Okay, so that's kind of the history of this. As part of these cases, he was not to have contact with her or to be within 500 feet of her home. Well, okay, that order was sort of like worth the paper it was written on. But again, numerous open felony cases. It gets better. McLean was convicted in May of 2021 of felony bail jumping in Brown County where he was also convicted of two domestic abuse crimes against the same woman in the latest case. He is prohibited from possessing a firearm. So let, let's review the bidding. He gets convicted in May of 2021 of felony bail jumping, convicted of domestic abuse crimes. Okay, he's got, and if you run 
You go to Wisconsin Circuit Court Access. You run this guy's record. I, it's it's almost impossible. He's only 23 years old, but it's still the, the rap sheet is as long as your leg. So, OK, he's convicted in May of 2021. He comes back here and he has numerous open felony cases in Milwaukee County, including one for fleeing an officer and another for discharging a firearm at the woman involved in the South Milwaukee case. And by the way, he, he's a felon. He's not allowed to possess a gun in the first place. And he is out on bail. Now, as near as I can figure out, and it's kind of complicated because there, there's so many charges against this guy and the system keeps turning him loose, I, I think the bail was 7500 bucks. I, I think that's what it was. But clearly, it, it's not enough to stop him from going back and confronting the woman and getting into a, an altercation. I, and I bring this up because, again, there is going to be an effort by the apologists for this catch-and-release criminal justice system we have to say that Daryl Brooks was an aberration. Daryl Brooks was not an aberration. Now, Daryl Brooks was an extreme example of a failed system. But stories like this one, this 23-year-old guy who's been convicted of multiple things while and then has been charged with new stuff, and then, while out on bail, has committed other crimes that he has been charged with, and then he's just been turned loose back out on the street. This is a normal. This is the way the system is set up to operate, and this is a system that the county is proud of. It's the way John Chisholm has created this, and it is the way the judges embrace this. And as a result, you have dangerous people out on the street over and over again. So when when you hear this story about how Daryl Brooks, well, he shouldn't have been released on a $1,000 bail. Of course he shouldn't have been released on a $1,000 bail. But again, this is not atypical. You will look around and you will find people who have, you know, are, are should not have been let out in the first place, who commit new crimes, and then they're turned around and they are let out again on ridiculously small bails, and then they reoffend. This is a regular thing. And if you talk to cops, they will tell you this is the story. And we're just getting to the tip of the iceberg because a lot of this stuff just completely goes unreported and it falls beneath the cracks because unless it's a situation where, again, while you're out on bail, you kill a bunch of people, you, you never find out about this. And don't even get me started on juveniles because we, we don't, we're never told what the juveniles records are we're never told what juvenile dispositions are it's only when they do something so serious that they get waived into adult court but this is the way the system is set up so what what needs to happen well there needs to be two changes first of all what we need to do is we need to go to more of a federal model that recognizes that bail has two purposes. One is to make sure the person does not, um, that he shows up, and two is to make sure that the person does not present a danger to the community. That's how the federal system works. Secondly, and this is the larger problem, you need to have a commitment by prosecutors in the courts that they are going to take dangerousness into account, that they're going to look at somebody who has committed crime after crime after crime while they're on probation or some form of pretrial release, and they continue to commit crimes, you need to recognize that they pose a danger to the community and that once you find probable cause to believe that they've committed another crime, they get detained without bail, period. Oh, you can't hold people without bail. Sure you can. And, and, and until you start doing that, 
you are going to have these incidences over and over again. And maybe it's not going to be, you know, Daryl Brooks. Hopefully, you're not going to have the person that goes out and kills six people and injures 60 more. Hopefully, you're not going to have that. But what about the people that are just driving recklessly in the stolen car and hit and kill somebody else? We, we need to have a sea change, not just adjustments in the law, but a sea change in attitude because the policies that we have had in effect for the last 15 years in Milwaukee County have posed a danger to the community. It's been an undercovered story. It's been an ignored story because the forces of political correctness says, well, let, let's try to let's not try to put people in jail. Let's not try to hold people. Let's let's just put them out on their own best behavior and hope for the best. Well, that strategy, I mean, hope is not a strategy when it comes to dealing with crime. So you, you've got that, that that's out there, but you need to see change in the attitudes that are going to be there, because even if you just change the law, as long as you've got prosecutors who don't believe in this and courts who don't believe in this and just want to turn people loose, it, it's not going to make any difference. Um, meanwhile, you know, the people in the city of Milwaukee, the people in Milwaukee County continue to be victimized. And as we see, and I made this point yesterday, I understand there is a tendency to say, and I, I get texts from people, well, crime in Milwaukee is out of control. There's no way I'm driving down there, don't want to have my car stolen or things like that. Well, th- that's fine, but you need to understand that the, the criminals in Milwaukee, it's not like the movie Escape from New York where there's a giant electrified fence and criminals in Milwaukee who have been turned loose back out on the streets to continue to commit more crimes. It's not like they stop at the city limits. I mean, Daryl Brooks... Daryl Brooks was out in Waukesha, for goodness sakes, when he did this. You know, you have people who commit crimes all over. It is a regional problem. And, and look, I, I'm, I'm not optimistic. It's not going to change till the attitudes change and the personnel changes. That, that's just the, the reality of this. And John Chisholm, I mean, I've called on him to resign. I think that's the appropriate thing to do in these situations. He's not going to do it. You know, he's going to, I mean, he was very proud in 2007. You know, he was very proud saying, hey, look, I, I know these are my policies. I, I'm going on a policy of let's catch and release we're going to find alternatives, and I understand that somebody somewhere is going to die because of this, but that doesn't mean that the policies aren't working and they're not effective. I think victims of Albert, uh, victims of Daryl Brooks might tend to disagree with the district attorney's assessment. But if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. This is just another of the countless examples of people who are committing crimes who should not be out on ridiculously low bails in the first place. And it's a story that you could tell over and over and over again. Don't believe me. Talk to any member of the Milwaukee Police Department. They'll tell you the same thing. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, they are back. Cocoa and candy cane cream puffs at the Wisconsin State Fair Park, one weekend only. drive through pickup is available next week, December 9th through the 12th. So pre-order now at statefaircreampuffs.com and save. Did you know that you can freeze your puffs, puffs as well? Let me try that again. Did you know you can freeze your puffs too? Order extra to enjoy all winter long. Limited edition cocoa and candy cane, cane cream puffs are available at Wisconsin State Fair Park. Get more info at statefaircreampuffs.com. For official contest rules, visit WTMJ.com. Now, you might say contest. What's the contest? Well, I've got a six-pack of those cream puffs to give away. Let's give them to caller number 11. Caller number 11 at 855-616-1620. 
That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Caller number 11 wins a six-pack of cream puffs. Like I say, they're available next week at the drive through pickup um, December 9th through the 12th. But you, know, you can get a free six-pack of cream puffs. Can't beat that. Cocoa and or candy cane cream puffs. Never had the candy cane cream puffs. Bet you they're pretty darn good. All right. As long as we are talking about trying to deal with crime, that's... I, I mentioned this when they first started talking about it. They've now done it. And I, I guess I, I don't have a problem with it. But to me, this is one of the things that you see where where people want to pretend that they're doing something about a problem, and, and they're really not. Um, here's the deal. Headline in the Journal Sentinel. From now on, reckless drivers in West Dallas could face up to a $10,000 fine. The city of West Dallas will be making a concerted effort to crack down on reckless driving in 2022, but those pulled over for driving dangerously won't automatically face a $10,000 fine. So this is this new campaign that they've approved, and as part of the initiatives, they are considering charging reckless driving offenders under a different part of the Wisconsin statute using negligent operation of a vehicle instead of reckless driving. That carries a, well, reckless driving carries a maximum fine of 200 bucks. Negligent operation of a vehicle carries a fine of up to $10,000. So the idea is we're going to, if we think it's appropriate, we're going to toughen the penalties. So we're, we're going to fine people up to $10,000. That, that sounds good on paper, and I understand it gets a headline in the newspaper and it gets the politicians and stuff to be able to say that they're cracking on down on reckless driving. And Lord knows we, we need to crack down on reckless driving. But can we, can we have a moment in the real world? And, and that, that is, that moment is, my, my question would be, all right, the, the people by and large that are driving recklessly are 16 year old kids who have just stolen their seventh car and are out for a joyride at 95 miles an hour blowing through red lights, right? It doesn't matter whether you find them $200 or $10,000 or $10 million. They don't have any money. They're not going to pay it. And if they had it, they wouldn't pay it. I mean, it, it's one of these complete and total disconnects. I mean, who who are the people, by and large, who are engaging in reckless driving? Well, again, it, it's not going to be people that can afford a $10,000 fine. It's going to be people in stolen cars. It's going to be people driving without insurance. It's going to be people that, um, in general, uh, don't care about the laws to begin with. And even if you fine them $10,000, they're not going to pay even if they had the money to pay. So I guess it, it, it makes a good headline. Well, we're, we're going to think about charging people with negligent operation of motor vehicle. We're going to charge, fine them $10,000. Okay, tell that to the 15-year-old kid who's just driven 95 miles an hour through the red light. Well, son, here, here's the deal. In addition to sending you back out on the streets for the fifth time to go steal more cars, this time we're going to fine you $10,000. And the kid will say, oh, sure, great. <laughs> the check is in the mail. It's, if, if you want to get serious on stopping negligent driving, you, you, you've got to, you've got to take the car thieves, you got to take the people that are blowing through the red lights at 95 miles an hour, and you have to teach them that there are responsibilities and there's accountability. If the car is not stolen, you seize the car and you forfeit it. You take the driver of the car, and it doesn't matter to me whether they're 14 years old or whether they're 45 years old or whether they're 84 years old. You take them, and depending on the facts and circumstances, you teach them that there is some going to be consequences, like house of correction, Maybe Lincoln Hills, maybe prison, depending on what they do. You shouldn't have to wait until the kid 
blows through the red light at 95 miles an hour. It hits and kills four people before we realize this is a problem. So once again, I, I it, it's fine. If you want to increase the fine to 10 grand, increase the fine to 10 grand. But let's be honest with people. That's not going to make a darn bit of difference. The only way you're going to get serious on reckless driving is if you crack down and start taking away, number one, the vehicle's if it's appropriate and the car's not stolen, and number two, the liberty of the people who are doing that. Anything else just isn't going to work. You get the newspaper headline, you get to pat yourself on the back and pretending that you're doing something, but $10,000 might as well be $10 million to most of the people that are engaging in this reckless driving. So, yeah, you can do it, but why don't we be honest with ourselves and really start figuring out solutions? Just saying. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. WTMJ, Good Karma Brands, and the United Way of Greater Milwaukee and Waukesha County are asking you for your help to support the families directly affected by the tragic incident at the Waukesha Christmas Parade. Please consider donating to the United for Waukesha Community Fund. If you would like to help, you can text the word FUND, F-U-N-D, to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. Through Saturday, each donation will be matched by the Foch family um, for up to $1 million. How cool is that? Together, we're all part of the home team. Again, how cool is that? So if you want to make a donation through Saturday, again, uh, the Foch family is going to, um, will match that donation up to a million bucks. So um, how, how cool is that? Just absolutely wonderful. You know, during the um, commercial break, I was listening, and we were they were doing the one commercial where they're talking about the remote starters. Whenever I hear things like that, I always remember back, I hearken back to my early days as a federal prosecutor. Now, in the very beginning, I wasn't I, – I, later on, I started doing some organized crime cases, but mostly I was doing drug work at the end of my career. But at the beginning, we, we had like a strike force team that was investigating – mafia activities back in in the day and i always remember i was listening i, I was listening in on, on one wiretap that we, that we ultimately did and it was one of the mafia families and stuff and i think of it whenever i hear these ads for remote starters because one of the the mafia leaders was talking about he would say the way you can tell who the snitches are is they're the ones with the remote starters, you know, because if they were obviously afraid that somebody was going to find out that they were snitching in the mafia family and that somebody's going to plant a bomb under their car. So that was who you could tell who the snitches are. They had the remote starters, so they didn't have to be sitting in their car when they started them. So in case they blew up, they would be uh, safe. Now, I think it has changed over time, but I always remember that's how you tell the snitches. It's they're the ones with the remote starters. Um, go figure. I... Every once in a while, I, I, I pride myself on, on thinking that there's, for most things, there's not a right or wrong. There, there's a better or worse. In, in other words, you know, you, people have ideas, and maybe it's not a, a great idea. It, 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 you think it's a bad idea, but it's not just absolutely crazy out there. You know, it's so that's where you have the discussion, okay, you know, better or worse. And then every once in a while, there, there's ideas and there's concepts that just completely and totally blow my mind for what I think are, are how bad they could possibly be. New York City. 
the outgoing mayor is a guy named Bill de Blasio. He, he's, he's, he's on his way out. There's, there's a new mayor that's been elected. De Blasio had presidential ambitions. And it just really, it never went anywhere. And I think his, I think his term in New York is going to be described as sort of like an unsuccessful kind of thing. And New York's got all sorts of problems. But on his way out, he has created this policy and New York is going to be the first city in the United States to actually implement what they call supervised injection sites for drug users. Now, other cities have talked about it, but they haven't gotten around to officially putting it into use. New York City is doing this. New York City announced um, on Tuesday the opening of two sites designed for drug users to consume illegal drugs under supervision. The first such sanction sites to open in the U.S. Okay, so here's here is the deal. You can show up at these two centers. You show up. They, they have a nurse or two on, on duty. And what you do is you can go into like a private booth and you can then shoot up with heroin. You can do speed balls of cocaine. If you want to take methamphetamine, you can take methamphetamine. Whatever, whatever drug that you want to do, you, you can do it. And you have like a nurse or two there. And what they will do is they will monitor you after you have shot up with heroin or after you've taken the methamphetamine and they'll monitor you. So in case you have an overdose of heroin, they're not going to inject you, but you know, you inject yourself. But then once you've again, they, they will then monitor you to make sure that you, you don't overdose. And if you do, of course, overdose, they will be there and they will try to, you know, administer whatever they can to try to, you know, make sure you don't die of this. And then they'll watch you for a while. And then once they think that it's safe, they will, they will let you go and they will release you, you know, in whatever state you're in. They'll release you back out into the community. And, you know, if you want to come back six or seven hours later and shoot up again, that's fine. You, you can do that. And it, it's like no harm, no foul, no nothing. Come on in and, and do this. And the idea is, you know, it's not just that we're going to give you clean syringes. Um, but, you know, we're going to give you a, a safe place to, to shoot up. And then we're going to make sure that you don't overdose, and then we're going to send you back out in the community. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I understand the superficial appeal of this. You say, well, you know, um, you, know you, you have these people, and you, you don't want people dying unattended of a, of a drug overdose in an alley, and this is a way around it. Okay, I, I appreciate that. That's on the one side. On the other side is, is there anybody out there that thinks that we want to do anything that, that encouraging somebody to become a heroin addict or encouraging somebody to become a meth addict or encouraging somebody to become a cocaine addict or any of the other drugs that are out there. Is there anybody that thinks that that is a, a good idea? On top of that, if you normalize this type of stuff, that is to say, okay, well, we're, we're going to now make it acceptable to, to do this sort of stuff. Is there anybody out there that seriously doesn't believe that this is going to lead to an increase in, uh, again, you know, people using drugs? 
people abusing drugs. I mean, how would you feel if you had a family member and you found out that your tax dollars were going to support that person, you know, showing up and, again, injecting themselves, you know, with, with heroin? Now, maybe on the one hand, you'd say, well, I think it's too bad he's a heroin addict. I'm sure he, at least he's got a safe environment to do it. But I'm here to tell you, there's not too many heroin addicts that have, like, long lifespans, you know, whether they are supervised or not. And if you, in fact, sanction it, and that's what this really does, at least in my opinion, isn't it more likely than not that you are going to increase the number of people who who do it because it's now normalizing this? Well, the state says it's okay. Here, I don't have to worry about it. And And by the way, where are the people going to get the money to buy the heroin and things like that anyhow? Oh, yes, they're going to be stealing from other people. 855-616-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Other cities have talked about doing this, Seattle, Philadelphia, but they've been tied up with with all sorts of legal issues because, I mean, by the way, um, possession of heroin, for example, is still a federal offense, even though Bill de Blasio might think it's a good idea to do this. Um, it, so you've got all sorts of, I mean, federal laws that come into conflict with this. But I want to talk about a policy. I mean, on the one hand, the argument is, hey, it, it's great. You've got a safe place for people to engage in this drug habit, which sooner or later, probably more sooner than later, is going to end up killing them. But but at least we're giving them a safe spot to kill themselves in. 855-616-1620. We discuss. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I don't care what the motives are. It seems to me that if we agree that that Okay, being a heroin addict is a bad thing. It's a it's a bad thing. It seems to me that by opening up what they call these safe injection sites, no questions asked, come on in, shoot up, and you know we'll have you know nurses there that'll make sure that you know you you don't overdose. I understand the motive. You know we don't want people dying from the drug overdoses, but this is enabling bad behavior. And shouldn't the goal be to try to, instead of encouraging people to have a safe, warm spot where they can inject themselves with heroin, shouldn't the goal really be to, okay, let, let's try to get them off heroin instead of, oh, you, you've really got kind of a, you're a really heavy high here. We want you to sit here in the chair for two more hours before we let you go stumble back out into the streets. 855-616-1620. And I'm sorry, I disagree with people who say that they do, they do not think, I've got a couple texts saying, well, we don't think it normalizes this behavior. We don't think it's going to lead to more addicts. I'm sorry. I just flat out disagree. When you normalize this, when you say, hey, it's okay, we're going to sanction this. We're going to provide you safe spots to do it. I think it does encourage people to say, okay, well, maybe this really isn't that bad. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Lisa in Milwaukee. Hi, Lisa. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. What do you think? So, okay. So, I think this is a horrible idea. Um, my daughter it was a heroin addict um, for a couple of years, and she's been clean and sober now, thank, thank the Lord, for like two and a half years. And the thought of giving these addicts a safe and cozy place to shoot up, to me, is just absolutely, it, it, it's sick. And what they don't realize is that, when when the addict is doing heroin and things like that, um, like in my daughter's case, at 22 years old, she had to get open heart surgery to get a valve replacement. So every time they're doing these drugs, you know, vegetation and, and things, they grow around your heart. I mean, this is a stupid idea. And 
if you lit up a cigarette in there, you'd probably get a ticket. Well, that's that's you know, a, but, but Lisa, but okay, let me. So, so you you deal you know on a, on a personal basis with 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 addiction. Now, yeah. some people would say, look. Addicts are going to be addicts regardless. So, you know, they are. Yeah. And so why don't given the fact that they're going to they're going to do their drug of choice, why don't we as a society make it easy for them to do it? Give them the the safest environment possible if we accept the fact that they're they're going to, you know, do it and that, you know, that Mm -hmm. things aren't going to change. What, What do you say to that argument? Um, no, because I mean, with my daughter's case, you know, I had to ask her to leave my home, you know, several times and they're going to do it if it's 30 below zero outside, mm-hmm. they're going to do it no matter what they're addicts. They have, I mean, they have right. to do it or they get very sick, go through withdrawals and things like that. No, you can't give them a cozy little place to me. Now, like my daughter would get her needles and, and her alcohol wipes and all that. She would just. You know, she would brag. Oh, I just, you yeah. know, can go down to the needle exchange yep. and get it. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, no. no, this is not not going to help. Maybe help lose those the money the nurses. Maybe help feed the homeless people or help the veterans. Don't help drug addicts kill themselves. And here's one more thing. Maybe if they're going to do this, at, you know, at least could they hand out a, a, a pamphlet of where somebody could go to get some help? This is awful. If I lived in New York, I would be out there picketing every single day. No, thank, thanks. I, and no, I hope- no, thanks to colleagues. No, I, I I understand. And and I mean, my understanding is that they have like drug counselors available to, for people who want to get help. But 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 at the same time, you want to talk about again a, a counterproductive thing here. You know, we 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 want you to get off the drugs. But here, here's here's the safe, warm room for you to shoot up. I mean, see, I think part of the thing. And Lisa was sort of uh, kind of talking about. It. I think on the one hand, can you first of all, can you imagine? I mean, your your child has a drug problem. You're doing everything you can to try to get your your child off the drugs. And look, and I, I I've I've talked to enough people who've had children or relatives that have had you know relatives with drug problems and stuff. And it's not just the drugs; it's the stealing to support your habits, and it's all those sort of things, and it's the lying, and it's all kind of, that kind of stuff. And and one of the things people will tell you is before people try to get help that you really have to hit rock bottom. I mean that that that's kind of it. And it seems to me that all we're doing with these kind of policies is we're delaying that. Okay, well you know don't worry, you know you just keep doing what you're doing, and yeah, keep stealing from your parents, and you know all right, kind of wander out into the streets and do whatever you got to do to support your habits and stuff. But we'll always be here to give you a cup of coffee and a warm place to shoot up once you get your heroin. I, it just if I were. A family member, and I'd be finding out that you know you've spent all this time trying to get your kids into rehab or your you know friends into rehab or, or whatever, and then you have the government that is essentially here's your needles, here's your alcohol swab, here here's a nice warm room for you to shoot up heroin. I I, I would be absolutely outraged. Michelle in Waukesha. Michelle, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi, um, I I was just listening to you, Lisa. I have two things. I've got. I had to go to the funeral for two different acquaintances the one provided the heroin for the other one but both of them ended up overdosing but the other thing is i have a a methadone clinic within two miles of where i live Mm -hmm. and it's on my main route to go to uh the interstate to go to work and it's providing a safe place 
I understand where the methadone clinic fills in the gaps for the people that are trying to get off of heroin and whatnot, but it's such a prevalent thing to make it a safe haven for these people to uh, basically continue to kill themselves with heroin. That's where I have the problem. And, And my daughter's a nurse, and for a nurse to put her license on the line if somebody overdoses and the paperwork and the logistics and the legalities of it oh yeah and and the funding of the taxpayer money for these people to yeah. go there to kill themselves yeah i mean is what i have an issue with no michelle it, it is interesting because what you are doing is again i think you're normalizing it and you know, somebody says well you should do your research and they, they do this in europe yeah i, I understand that you you've had I mean, right, you, you've had, uh, there's a much different approach to, to drug use in certain parts of Europe than there is in the United States. And some countries are much more embracing of this. There's no question about it. That doesn't mean it's a good idea. I mean, creating people who are lifetime, you know, heroin addicts or dependent on, on whatever is not necessarily, I think, the way that you grow a civilized society. And again, I believe that, look, as somebody who has, you know, I mean, I was a drug prosecutor for a lot of years, and I've, I've seen how this fascination we have in our society just destroys families and, and things like that. And I'm sorry, I just continue to believe that anything you do to normalize, I don't know, heroin addiction, methadone, uh, heroin addiction, or methamphetamine addiction, or, or cocaine, I, I think anything that you do to do that, no matter how noble your motives are, takes us in the wrong direction. And, and you will never, ever, ever convince me otherwise. And I understand it's this touchy-feely thing, and we want to be compassionate because, you know, we don't want to have people overdosing. Well, look, sooner or later, I mean, if you're if you're injecting heroin into yourself and you're going there a couple times a week to do it, your, your, your lifespan, you're in a lot of trouble. And the only way that, you know, you're going to live a longer life is to get off the stuff in the first place. And I continue to believe that giving somebody a safe, warm place to shoot up does not encourage them to get off the stuff. But if you're looking for a safe place to shoot up, New York City is your place. It's that kind of town. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Okay, let's go where angels fear to tread. Whenever we want to talk about, like, new COVID regulations and stuff, it's just... There are people out there, and I hear from them, who believe that, that, that COVID is, is the plague of the 21st century and that um, everybody who gets COVID is going to die. And so what we need to do is we need to lock down and we need to wear hazmat suits. Or they don't necessarily come out and say that, but that, that's really what they kind of think. And, and it's going to be that way for forever. Um, the contrast is there's people who think that there's nothing to see here and, you know, we're just going to run around and we're going to treat it like it's not a situation. And the truth is, I think you have to have a nuanced view and you, I think you have to, uh, again, kind of look at, at stuff and ask the question, does, does this make sense? I think a lot of the things that we have done over the, the last year and a half candidly haven't made sense. It's kind of these like knee jerk reactions to things. Um, you know, blanket lockdowns across the state of Wisconsin where, 
you know, you, you didn't maybe, you know, in a particular region or in the city of Milwaukee to say that, okay, what's going on in the city of Milwaukee with regard to COVID was the same as what was going on in Wausau or what was going on in Superior. It, it just never made any sense. But, but yet we, we did that. You've now got, okay, the, the, these travel restrictions and, um, you know, Joe Biden, th- there's pressure right now. We talked about this yesterday or two days ago. The CDC wants him to take more steps and people in the Biden administration want to and have been seriously considering saying not only if you're involved in international travel, not only do you have to be tested before you travel to the United States, but we want you to be travel tested three or four days after you get here. And we, we want you to self quarantine for a week. Now, we talked about that yesterday. So far, the Biden administration hasn't pulled the trigger on that, although there is some pressure internally for them to do it. I, I just think that that's completely and totally unworkable. How are you going to how are you going to say everybody coming in from overseas is self-quarantined? The other problem, though, is, of course, you know, what, what, when you start to think and ask yourself the question about this stuff makes sense, and I, I've said this before, if, okay, if we're going to, and I'm not an advocate for saying that you should have to be tested before you, you travel domestically, but if the idea is we're afraid of people who might be exposed to COVID spreading it, does it really make any difference if you're traveling from Florida to Milwaukee or if you're traveling from, I don't know, Spain to, to you know, Chicago? I mean, it, is, is there really a, an intellectual justification for treating, you know, COVID differently depending on where you're coming from, unless you're coming from like a COVID hotspot or if you're worried about this Omicron thing, you know, from like South Africa or something, some of the countries where it's spread. But but we, we do these kind of feel good things to make us think that, you know, things are going to be better. And, and and maybe that's the case. But a lot of the stuff seems to me to be just kind of this like knee jerk reaction because we, we, we want to do something to make it think like we're we're, we're solving problems. And again, this comes from the perspective of somebody who I'm fully vaccinated, got my booster shot yesterday. I think people should get vaccinated. Right now, we're, we're kind of locked in across the country. It's a slightly under 60 percent of the people are fully vaccinated uh, across the, the country. And that's pretty much been a stationary number. It, it's the people have decided they're not going to get vaccinated. They're, you know, short of short of putting guns to their heads and forcing them to do it one way or the other, I, I think we're, we're kind of topping out where we are. So right or wrong, we're going to have to live with the fact that you're going to have variants of COVID. We have to figure out how to, to just deal with that as best we can. One of the things that Joe Biden has done, though, is he has taken his mask mandate and he has now extended it until March. Um, for people who haven't been familiar with this, the federal government now says that whenever you go into an airport, you have to wear a mask. Whenever it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or not, doesn't matter if you have booster shots or not, you have to wear a mask when you're in an airport. The federal government has said that when you are on an airplane, you have to wear a mask. And if you've traveled, I've traveled a lot um, over the last year and a half. You, you just you have to put the mask on. And, you know, if you don't have the mask on, they yell at you. They come over the loudspeakers. But it's not the airlines. It's the federal government saying that you have to have a mask on if you're on the plane. In addition, if you haven't been on a train since COVID, but the rules apply to trains. The rules apply to buses as well. And originally the order was supposed to expire on January 18th. The um, Now, that order is going to continue at least until mid-March. All right, 
Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I have a question. And my question is, do you think we will ever go back to a situation where when we are traveling, airplanes on on public accommodations, airplanes, trains, buses, do you think we will ever go back to a situation where masks are not required? Or, now I understand the Biden order only runs right now through mid-March, but I don't know. I don't think COVID is going anywhere. I think, you know, COVID is going to be something that's with us for a long time. If I'm right, will we ever go back to a situation where masks are not required on public transportation? Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I don't think, and I'm, I'm willing to be proven wrong, and, and maybe mid-March is going to roll around and, and all of a sudden you're going to have a sea change in attitude, but I don't think so. I think that what we're dealing with now is, in fact, the, the new normal and that it's going to be this is going to be our reaction for the foreseeable future, especially since I believe that COVID isn't going to be going anywhere. Now, you're going to have ebbs and flows in right now. You're starting to see a spike of COVID cases, particularly in colder areas, because now people are starting to go inside. So they're inside more. So there's more of a possibility for this to, to spread. And down south where it's warmer and now people are out of the air conditioning, people, it's cooling off down there. I think you're seeing some of the numbers down there drop. But is this the new normal? I mean, is there ever going to be a time where we go back to being able to get on an airplane and not have to, you know, wear a mask, being able to walk in an airport and not wear a mask? Is is this the new normal? And my answer is yes. And for anybody who thinks that this is going to change in, in November or this is going to change next March or this is going to change next July or this is going to change a year from now, I, I just, I, I don't think that that's the case. I think that we are now, we, we've crossed that bridge, and I don't think it's going to go back anytime soon. 855-616-1620. And I'm talking about mandates. I understand that there's also going to be some people who just by their own volition are, are going to wear masks wherever they go. And, and as I've always said, that, that's fine if that's your individual choice. And I can understand why maybe people feel more comfortable, you know, wearing masks on airplanes and stuff like that. But as far as the mandates, is this going to be the new normal? Do you see this being rolled back anytime soon? And my answer is is no, I don't. 855-616-1620, we discuss. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Eight five five six one six one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, sort of like entitlements with Washington. You know, once once an entitlement is passed, even if it's passed temporarily, it's never rolled back because people get used to it. And if you try to roll something back, hey, we were doing this or whatever, then people complain, oh, you don't care about the folks that are getting this money. So even if it's a temporary entitlement, once it goes in, it's very, very rarely rolled back. I think the same thing is true of some of these various COVID mandates, particularly the the mask mandates. And I I guess regardless of how you feel about whether or not you should be required to wear masks on airplanes, I, I do think... This idea that this is going to be a temporary thing is is just 
it, it's just naive. Matter of fact, there was a Democratic strategist who got in all sorts of trouble. Um, she wrote a piece in the Washington Post the other day where you know she was talking about how, well, th- th- this is the new normal. All these different restrictions that we have in place, you know, just get used to it. That's not going to change. And a number of fellow Democrats just absolutely freaked out, saying, oh, you, you, you can't say that because, you know, we, we want to tell people that this stuff is all temporary. And even though you're, you're right, it might be a permanent sort of thing that people have to get used to. No, we don't want to say that because people are, are already, they've got COVID fatigue. They're fed up with all the different government regulations, and they're fed up with the rules that seem to change every day based on, you know, what's science thinks is the correct thing in a particular day and how politicians decide to react to it. So don't don't even say that. But I, I mean, I think that is I think that that is the, the reality. The Biden administration is going to extend this mask mandate through March. I don't know what is magic about March. I, I mean, I, I, I honestly I, I honestly don't. And my guess is when March rolls around and the, the covid numbers, maybe they'll be a little bit better. I mean, again, you're Typically, what we've seen, just like with the flu numbers, and I understand that COVID's not the flu, but typically um, they, they, they vary by season. And when people are in, in the north, for example, confined more indoors where it, it spreads easier, apparently, I mean, you, you see the numbers go up and then summertime rolls around and the numbers tend to go down. So, I mean, I, I think anybody that thinks that March comes around and suddenly there's going to be, oh, OK, well, well now we're going to roll back this. I don't think they understand where this administration is, and, and I don't think that it's going to happen at all. Now, if it happens under the Biden administration in the next year, maybe it will happen next October or something. Why would it happen then? Well, it might happen then because you've got, you know, midterm elections that are coming up and, you know, you might have the administration that wants to take a victory lap over COVID. But otherwise, I I think the the reality is these various mask kind of mandates, particularly in public transportation, I I think they they are pretty much here to stay. A number of texts on this, Jeff, if mask if masks work, why can't they be voluntary? Well, I mean, that that kind of raises the question if if and I understand why people wear masks on airplanes. And candidly, even if there wasn't a rule, I would seriously think about that because I when I used to travel a lot pre covid, um, I would tell you, it would seem to me and maybe it was just coincidental that when I got colds and stuff, it was almost always after coming off airplanes because you're in close quarters and inevitably I'm always sitting like a row in front of some kid who's like not covering her mouth when she's sneezing or coughing or whatever. And you can just tell it's a germ factory. So, you know, maybe there's a value to masks. But, of course, that's a voluntary sort of decision that is out there. Um, Jeff, I genuinely believe that um, Biden's numbers are driving this. And I, I think that um, and but I agree with you, I think ending the mandate before voting takes place, that that's going to happen because otherwise there will be political consequences. Jeff, I think this is the new normal for the foreseeable future. I agree. It is the new normal for the foreseeable future. And I, I think you might as well just get used to it. A um, number of people are saying things to this effect that it's as long as Biden is president, this is this is the rule. It's going to be the mandate. and It goes on and on. Yeah, I guess I think. That candidly, if we were going to be honest with the American people, I would almost rather have us say this. I would almost rather have Joe Biden come out and say, look, 
This is the new normal. We've got these COVID numbers. It seems like every time we turn around, the numbers are going up. We, we don't have a handle on this. Our vaccinations are kind of stalled at 60% or wherever they are. And so this is it. The new normal. Let, let, why, why play around? Why say we're going to, we're going to put this in place until March? Why not just say what you know that, that they want to do? Why not just say this is the new normal for the foreseeable future until you hear otherwise? Plan on having to wear masks if you get on buses. Plan on wearing masks if you have to get on trains. Plan on wearing masks if you have to get on airplanes. That is going to be the rule moving forward forever instead of until we tell you otherwise and, and then just plan on it instead of, okay, well, we're going to continue it and extend it for another 90 days. We're going to continue and extend it for another 60 days. When you know that 60 days from now, there's probably not going to be any really material difference. COVID is, and see, this is part of my overall theme. We have to figure out how to live with COVID. And we have to figure out how to, to balance this. And, and, you know, where do you draw the line between trying to stop the, the spread of a virus, which for most people, is going to be an inconvenience, but for some people, particularly those people who are most at risk, it can have really, really serious consequences. Where do you balance that between inconvenience and then, of course, you know, fiscal ruin and things like that? How do you work all that balancing out? But let's recognize that COVID is, we're not going to solve the problem of COVID anytime soon. So why do we say we're going to extend this rule for 60 days? Why don't we just be honest with the American people and say, from now on, get used to it. If you're going to fly on a plane or get on a bus, you're going to have to wear a mask and we'll tell you when that stops. Now, the reason we don't do that, I guess, is because the politicians recognize if we told the truth and we told that this was going to be at least a semi-permanent change, there would be, again, people that would be upset with that and there might be a backlash. So we're going to try to do this incrementally, figuring that, okay, people are dumb and they're not going to realize that this is the new permanent plan that's out there and people are going to have to figure out how to live with it. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News.